Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 4th of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The nurses' strike came to an end last month when a deal was brokered with the INMO, which would see pay increases on average of €1,200. A new enhanced nurse grade would make for an additional increase and result in pay rises of €2,500 for some nurses. Members of the INMO have yet to vote on the deal, but it is being recommended to them by their trade union. Nurses who are members of the SIP2 trade union did not strike and will also vote on the proposed deal. Contracts for the new enhanced grade of nurse have been given to trade unions. SIP2 says it has serious concerns about what's on offer. Let's find out why now because Paul Bell, SIP2 Health Division Organiser, is in studio with us. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. This is a a new grade of nurse which has been established in terms of the dispute and in trying to find a resolution to the dispute. So obviously with this new grade comes new duties and I take it that's where you have your concerns. Well, actually, the, the, yes, the, the Labour Code recommendation, Michael and Fairness, uh, SIP2 was party to a, a Labour Code recommendation uh, similar to other unions uh, representing nurses. Uh, and that Labour Code recommendation to basically sets out how some of these issues can be addressed in relation to nurses' pay. And as you quite rightly point out, one of those options is to recommend an, an enhanced nurse practitioner, uh, which would bring about access to a new scale based on certain criteria, and that criteria is not quite clear yet. But in fairness, um, a lot of people practising nurses both in mental health uh, and in the acute setting would have expected that in some way uh, the Labour Court recommendation would give way to being able to have a negotiation which would result in a settlement satisfactory to to, to members in the nursing fraternity. Ourselves, we speak for SIP2, and two weeks ago we made it quite clear to our members in a, in a public communication uh, that while we had the Labour Court recommendation, we would not be recommending anything to our members until we had full sight and full cognizance of the actual proposed contract. Uh, those contracts, or proposed contracts, arrived mm. uh, with SIP2, and I'm, I'm sure other organisations involved in nursing, uh, last Thursday evening, uh, with about 12 hours' notice that there would be a meeting uh, to discuss 
what the government see uh, as a fair productivity proposal uh, in order for this new uh, Northern Grey to be uh, accepted uh, for for the government, obviously, uh, and obviously the other matters concerning uh, terms and conditions. Uh, we have real serious concerns about what's being proposed. Uh, and at, uh, Over the weekend, we made it quite clear to our members there really is nothing to see here because there's nothing that's been put to us at this stage uh, that we could recommend to nursing members of SIPTU. Uh, I know other colleagues in other unions are having conversations as well, uh, but that's their initial reaction. You've issued a statement mm-hmm. saying uh, that the document will not be acceptable to your membership in its current form. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that SIP2 will be recommending rejecting the deal that's on offer? Oh, right now as it stands, uh, we won't be recommending what's been put to us by uh, the government negotiators. And remember, it's not just the Department of Health that's involved in this negotiation on the employer side. It's the Health Service Executive, uh, but also, of course, the, the Department of Public Expenditure and mm. Reform. Uh, and the line being held there, as it was always going mm. to be held, was you can have negotiations about productivity, mm. but productivity means that whatever deal comes about has to be self-financing. Uh, the problem that we believe is that some of the proposals put an onerous burden on nursing professionals and actually, I, I believe, would be retrograde. And uh, there are examples that I can mm. give of what the concerns would be. Okay, and I'd like you to give those uh, yeah. examples, uh, but people, I'm sure, are confused listening to you because SIPTU didn't strike, uh, as I said. Mm-hmm. The INMO went out on strike because their members, they said, mm-hmm. were overworked and underpaid. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, was the INMO not successful in achieving pay increases and less work for their members? Well, certainly, Michael, I'm not going to be drawn into that conversation because I'm not going to make a judgment on a, on a strategy adopted by a, a fellow trade union. Mm. Uh, the position we put forward was... Well, that you, we, that you we mentioned sh- productivity yes, there. That would indicate yes. that more is expected oh, of the nurses. We'll be very clear about this. Uh, more is expected. Mm. And, and, and by the way, we think that it's somewhat burdensome on the nursing professionals what is being expected. But just to go back to the, to the point that you've made, mm. the government always made it quite clear... Well, from the start of the, uh, sorry, from the Labour Code recommendations were published, mm. that they would bring forward documents uh, that would be verified as achieving significant productivity gains uh, for the health service. Uh, in the initial document put out last week, uh, they've demonstrated that to the mm. point where the total burden, we believe, is being placed on the nursing professional. You said it was self-financing. Yes. Uh, and... Uh, that would go against what most people would have thought to have been a successful strike in that uh, people would have uh, thought that this resulted mm-hmm. in more money being allocated to nursing personnel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, we do know that in part, some of it is uh, to be raised uh, by using fewer agency staff mm-hmm. and bringing mm-hmm. down that bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what else is there to this uh, in terms of uh, paying for the cost of these increases? Well, can I just take, take a slight step back, Michael? The, the Public Service Stability Agreement never, ever stopped any parties from agreeing productivity to actually finance adjustments in pay Mm. on new scales, on new conditions. Uh, And we made that quite clear. Uh, The Public Service Pay Agreement, uh, sorry, apologies, the Public Service Pay Commission also make it quite clear that some of this matters uh, can be dealt with through um, reviews. And indeed, the review still is still an option for for the trade unions involved in this particular dispute. Um, The 
the proposals being put forward uh, in the initial documents that we've seen, I remember, Michael, there's a proposal for uh, nurses working in the acute setting, yeah. and there's also proposals working in the mental health services, which I wouldn't like to go out of this interview without having some commentary upon, because I believe they're actually more complicated. Yeah. Um, but what basically the government is proposing uh, is a free-for-all in relation to how nurses uh, work their own rosters and how they're redeployed. And to give an example, uh, most nurses, not them all, but most nurses in the acute settings uh, would work 12-hour shifts. Uh, government uh, are asserting their right under this productivity clause uh, to change those rosters where some nurses would end up with shifts of two hours duration, four hours duration, six hour duration, eight and 12 hour duration. Uh, that, um, we believe, would create major difficulties for nursing professionals, in, including, by the way, trying to recruit nursing professionals and trying to retain them in their jobs. That on some days you'd be in work for just two hours? Well, that's what the proposal has been put forward to us. That's, that's why we have uh, had no difficulty in responding to that. Uh, in fact, we responded last night uh, to our SIP2 nursing sector to government, mm. formally outlining that that type of proposal mm. is a non-runner. Mm. Now, th- this would mean, obviously, that you would have uh, basically some nurses would have a, um, a six-hour shift or eight-hour shift on a certain day. Mm. Uh, we have real issues with that. But coupled with that, Michael, is um, also the issue concerning redeployment. Mm. As we are aware, there's a redeployment clause within the Public Service Stability Agreement, and that has to be done in consultation with the employee, whether they be a nurse or an adult health professional mm. or a porter, or whatever they are. Um, but in this document, it basically means that you can be redeployed from an acute setting into a community setting without any say-so, uh, a unilateral direction can be given and that means you will be redeployed. You'll be given notice and you'll be redeployed. What's also uh, interesting in the proposed document, uh, which is really somewhat strange, is that there's a proposal that you can have on-shift redeployment. In other words, you may be working in a particular setting, maybe in the emergency department, mm. uh, maybe on a Lady Lord's Hospital, for example, mm. uh, maybe four hours into the shift, uh, uh, your manager can direct you then, now I want you to go uh, work the, the surgical ward I want to like go down to the theatre. Now, that's the way the document reads. And anybody who eventually gets an opportunity to consider where this is, because remember, there will be negotiations ongoing today on Wednesday and Friday, I believe. Uh, SIP2 will play its part in those mm. negotiations. Uh, but these are the kinds of issues which are literally jumping but off But go the back page. to the money. Uh, is SIP2 saying that there's no new money being allocated for these changes? Well, that's their view. It certainly is. We understand, mm. and from the document, by the okay. way, Michael, from the document it says quite clearly that all the cost savings mm. have to be independently verified. That hasn't been decided how that would be done, but it's very clear in the document, which means that there has to be verification that these savings have actually been made. Now, I suspect, by the way, government, uh, uh, and Taoiseach did make some remarks uh, over the last couple of weeks, the government want to be able to demonstrate uh, to probably to the public, to themselves, and maybe other trade unions mm. who would have had a an, would have an interest in having productivity negotiations. That if you sign up to these things, it must be verifiable that the savings have been made. And you already have mentioned mm. agency workers. Yeah, uh, and is it right to say that some nurses will be on less pay or on less pay than they would have been had this change not been introduced? Because nurses 
have a, a, a starting salary and mm. their pay increases incrementally as they become more experienced. Yes. Uh, and there is, I believe, in this contract, the uh, increment uh, at point two, mm-hmm. which will be foregone. Yes, there's, a, there's an adjustment uh, for on the incremental scale. So, and this would this would help, especially so, those notices who have come in since 2011, and then at some. So stage, they wouldn't get their pay increase. Uh, well, at, the, the, uh, at point two, when they reach point two, it would make no difference in their salary. I, I, I'm misunderstanding the question, Michael. Sorry. When when a nurse reaches point two yes. on the grade scale, yeah, they wouldn't get the increase that they get now. Uh, no, they would, they would, they would, well, if this contract was signed mm. up to, obviously they would then go on to this new enhanced scale once it was verified that they were actually suitable to be on that scale. And again, that criteria has to be nailed down at this mm. stage. So there's a lot of issues which are a lot of moving parts mm. which are ongoing at the moment. Uh, but at the end of the day, you're, you're quite correct to say that the battle line is if you're going to be rewarded, you're going to have to demonstrate that you're in a new contract that you're definitely going to be able to achieve productivity and therefore it's self-financing. And of course, you have the issue then concerning agency workers Mm. and the use of them and the costs associated with agency workers. And there is references within the actual document to that. Um, They are some of the things that we would have discussed over the last number of years and these are some of the issues that have never been addressed. But is it that newer, younger nurses will in part pay for this? Uh, I think every nurse... Every nursing profession will pay for this. Uh, remember, there are some nurses who, uh, at a senior level, would believe that maybe uh, some elements that they would to have achieved today mm. haven't been achieved. But having said that, we wouldn't know what would happen in the review process, which is also referred to in the Labour Court recommendation. Uh, there's a lot of talking to be done, a lot mm. of detailed discussion to be done. Um, I suppose for Air members, Air members have made it quite clear that whatever happens... They want to have full knowledge of what is being expected, uh, never mind what the union's going to recommend. Yeah. And the union means their elected shop stewards as a committee of SIP to deciding, well, this, is this good for us? Do we make good progress? Is yeah. it good for the patient? What do we do when we come to the end of the, of the negotiations? If government remain in this position, Michael, uh, I believe that it will be impossible to actually make an agreement. Uh, And that may mean that there'll have to be further intervention with the Workplace Relations Commission or indeed the Labour Court. I'm not prescribing that. I'm just trying to think it through because we always said from the start that this will be a complex Mm. uh, situation, uh, that the regrading of nurses, uh, negotiations for productivity would be absolutely complex and would not be just a black and white issue. And as you know, Michael, from Mm. your own show, there's been quite a lot of reaction from nursing professionals of what they think is in the agreement or or what they think they're going to be asked to sign up to. Uh, Over the last four or five days, it's become quite clear that some of those fears are somewhat justified. However, the unions involved are in negotiation and we would hope that something would come from that. If I could mention the mental health services, um, there was a view from government that the Labour Court recommendation issued in the acute hospital settings would automatically transpose into mental health. Uh, That was very, very naive on the government's part because most of what's been offered through the Labour Court recommendation in the acute setting already exists in mental health, where mental health nurses are are on a higher pay scale. Um, 
Labour Court never issued a recommendation per se for mental health. Mm. What they did was they issued uh, a letter advising the parties that there needed to be at least a three-week period of negotiation on what may fit in that service. Unfortunately, the government seemed to be proceeding on the basis of saying, well, this is what we're saying to one group, and we're going to continue to say that to you. Uh, we have had some uh, engagement with our mental health nurses who are basically saying, in some circumstances, we actually may be better off staying the way we are. OK, if SIP2 members don't sign up to this deal, mm-hmm. what does it mean? Well, what it basically means, as far as we're concerned, SIP2 uh, members would basically say, we don't have to sign that contract and we remain but as But does it is. mean that there isn't a, a deal with the nursing profession across the board? Regardless well, well, of, it could mean that, Michael, because we're not going to sign our members up to a position where they feel that they've actually paid for their own wage wage adjustment. But it, it's not possible, in other words, then, for another trade union... Well, here's the complexity, Michael. Uh, there's a collective negotiation ongoing. Uh, the question I think that we'll be asking and taking advice on, uh, do we have the right to sign up collectively to an agreement, which basically means that you must sign up individually? Some nurses will say, well, do I have to sign a new contract or can I remain as is? Because we've made it quite clear from the SIPTA perspective, if our members don't accept the new adjustments, uh, are they protected under the public service agreement? Mm. And they are protected under the public service agreement. So there's a very complex negotiation. Mm. And there's some degree of fog about some issues. And there's some degree of very, very clear blue sky where you can see what's going to develop into the Mm. future. But one way or the other, Michael, this issue we always said was going to be complex. And we do not believe that it's near being finished with yet. Okay, And just finally... Is the agreement in line with the public service pay agreement? The Labour Court recommendation says it is. And SIP2's opinion? Well, we wouldn't question the wisdom of the Labour Court. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for coming in to us this morning. Paul Bell, SIP2 Health Division Organiser. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, new legislation proposed uh, by Sinn Féin, which would make it illegal to withhold tips that are left for employees, is not needed, uh, according to the Low Pay Commission. Let's talk about this with uh, the sponsor of uh, the bill, Senator Paul Gavin, who joins us once again. And uh, a very good morning to you, and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, I'm sure you were very interested in what the Low Pay Commission said. Uh, First of all, it's uh, not sure that it is a problem to the extent that you believe it is. It also believes that if you brought in legislation uh, that it would be unenforceable and it might have uh, the opposite effect with unintended consequences resulting in people coming home with less pay. Good morning, Mike, and thanks for the opportunity to talk on this. Um, It's quite an extraordinary report, and those aren't um, um, my words. Uh, Richard Grogan, the employment law specialist to the Low Pay Commission, invited to make a submission, described the report as quite incredible. And I'll go on to quote, he said, the arguments about tax as a smokescreen, an excuse to avoid addressing the ripoff of customers and staff. And he goes on to say that this is really a question of political will. And I think that's what it's about. The, the report itself, frankly, is disappointing. Not entirely surprising, though, Mike, because uh, as far back as last November, uh, my office uh, asked for a freedom of information request to ask who they were inviting to, to give submissions on this report. And here's the thing, Mike. The Low Pay Commission refused to answer the question. And it was only after um, three appeals that we got the answer, and it showed that they asked an awful lot more employer groups than employee groups. 
uh, to make submissions. So the report itself was fundamentally flawed from the beginning. And, and, and two things in particular strike me. The first is their statement about not being enough data. Uh, so they disregard mm-hmm. the data that's out there already. And then they go on to say that given the time involved, we thought about getting data ourselves, but we just felt it, we didn't have time, just time constraints. That's what's in the report. Now, this report, Mike, took a year. There's only 60 pages in it. So over the course of a year, the low-pay commission are telling us they couldn't take the time to get data themselves. That's quite extraordinary. And the second reason, uh, which I find even more extraordinary, uh, that they cite for not backing the legislation is a lack of consensus. Mm. No, there isn't a consensus. I've been very upfront about that. Uh, employer groups like the Restaurant Association of Ireland and the Irish Hotels Federation, with their very strong lobbying arms, they do not want tips protected. But just to remind your listeners, extensive research in Galway in 2017 showed that one in three workers are not getting the tips that are due to them. And if they did, would they come home with less money? I mean, this is one of the points that the Low Pay Commission is making because at the moment it's cash in hand, if you like. Uh, It's not declared for tax purposes and uh, it could have the unintended consequence of becoming declarable and resulting in money being taken from low paid employees by revenue. And I'm glad you raised that. So there's two points in relation to that. The first is there are no tax, tax implications from this bill whatsoever. We don't tax, we don't touch the existing tax laws. The existing tax laws do say that uh, workers should declare tips. I think in reality, most workers uh, who take cash tips don't. And I don't see that situation changing, frankly. Um, the, the second point, and I think it's really worth bearing in mind as well, is that the fact of the matter is most of these workers don't qualify to pay tax. They're paid so little. So, you know, it, it, again, and again, I'll, I'll quote Richard Grogan on that again, it, this is a smokescreen, an excuse to, to, to avoid taking issue. And here's perhaps the most extraordinary line in that report. Um, it says, uh, leaving things as they are, which is what the local pay commission effectively recommends, would leave employer, employees would still be left in a position where employers could take ownership of some or all of the tips left for them. Now, that's an extraordinary admission on a, in a report like that. The, this, this low-paid commission is supposed to look after low-paid workers. It's saying that leaving things as they are will leave employers legally able to take that money from employees. Mm. How could that possibly be an acceptable situation? Well, because there's nothing uh, in Irish legislation uh, which uh, defines uh, what the money is for and who it is intended to, to be given to, uh, and that is uh, the problem there. So if uh, the employer believes, well, it was left on the table of my rest and we talked about this uh, the last time, uh, I'm taking it, uh, albeit in a circumstance where the person who left it there left it for whoever served them. Well, you're absolutely right. That is the problem. And that's why our bill, which is a very, very simple bill, uh, simply would give a right of legal redress uh, for employees in that circumstance. They could then go to the Workplace Relations Commission, uh, present their case, and let an adjudicator um, basically adjudicate on the matter. More importantly, if the law was passed particularly with the help of the trade union movement, who have been hugely supportive of this bill because they understand the problems in the sector, particularly uh, SIP2 and Mandate, um, it would effectively be placed very easily because workers would be aware the tips are legally due to them. And if they don't get them, they'd quickly be onto a trade union and, and the situation would be resolved. This is really about basic rights for workers, some of the lowest paid workers in the country. Uh, it is a very disappointing report, but let me stress, it certainly won't stop... Uh, Sinn Féin from pursuing this bill and I'm glad to say we we continue to have the broad support of the trade union movement, of the Labour Party, of independence Um, and it really will be quite shameful if Fine Gael used this as an excuse not to act 
and not to protect these low-paid, precarious workers. Uh, and you say that they're so low-paid that a lot of them don't pay any income tax uh, because they're not earning a, a enough. Uh, are they that low-paid when you take into account what they are receiving in tips? And uh, I suppose this is the argument that the Commission is making uh, and that it could bring them into the tax net. Well, as I say, here's the key point on that. I'll be frank, in some cases it may, in some cases it may not. We don't know. Mm. But well, a lot of people would earn more in tips than they would uh, in salary, wouldn't they? I wouldn't say they'd earn more, but they'd earn the difference to, be, to enable them to pay their rent each week or maybe be able to go out to the cinema once every a fortnight. Mm. Um, but here's the thing. Our bill does not change the tax situation, and that's why Richard Grogan quite rightly refers to it. And he's a leading employment law specialist who the government asked for advice as a smokescreen. Our bill doesn't touch the tax situation in any way. Um, this is effectively a straw man set up by the likes of the Restaurant Association of Ireland. Our bill doesn't touch this issue in any way whatsoever. And what what I do find interesting is, you know, the lengths that um, some of the employers, and let me stress there are many good employers in the sector, I'm always keen to stress that, but some employers are going to, to avoid simply having a a legal right of redress for employees in very precarious, low-paid work. All right, and you believe uh, that it would be policeable and enforceable and uh, that uh, you'd be able to get uh, the money for people if uh, the tips are are being taken by the employers without uh, a fallout from it, uh, because uh, I'm sure some people would be uh, reluctant to challenge their employers like that as well. Well, that's a fair point, but I think two things will factor there, Mike. The first is having legal redress, which we don't currently have for those workers. And secondly, as I say, very active trade union movement uh, in the sector. And I'll be very confident, and I used to be a trade union official myself, this is, this is where I came across this problem first, that uh, you know, when employers realised that trade unions will be on their case in relation to tips, they'd very quickly make sure that they keep, keep their, um, their, their, their rules straight and ensure that tips are passed on fairly and equitably. And as I say, and actually this is one thing I should stress, a number mm. of employers uh, have contacted me and indeed on, on other local radio stations have said they support our bill. And the reason they support our bill is because they think the competition from employers who take tips is, is completely unfair. With, this is just a simple step to, le- to have a level playing field so that every employer has to honour the commitments that, in fairness, uh, the majority of employers currently do undertake. So it's a win-win in terms of good employers and good work practice. Um, and as I say... Very disappointing report, but one that frankly lacks credibility in a number of areas. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning, Sinn Fein Senator Paul Gavin. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, by the end of uh, next week, uh, there should be some sort of certainty about uh, Brexit. And of course, Brexit is never that straightforward. So by the end of next week, we may be saying game on, game off, or half time as the case may be. Let's talk about where we're going with all of this with Paddy Malone, who's PRO of uh, the Chamber of Commerce in Dundalk. Uh, the government will meet informally this evening in Farmley and discuss Brexit over dinner ahead of some crucial votes which will take place next week. Are, are we into the end game, do you think? Well, it would appear so. The calendar tells us that's where we are, but I'm, I'm not too sure. I mean, even this morning, you're, you're hearing that Cox, the, the British Attorney General, now admits that he's not going to get very far with what he's trying to do, which is to have a definite time limit on the, on the backstop, that that's not going to move, that the mm. EU are, are fixed that the negotiations are over and that he's going to have to come back at it in another way. I think 
you know, we are where we are simply because the British didn't plan this out from the beginning. They had no idea what they were looking at and thought they were still the 19th century and that they could do what they wanted. Mm. Um, and it's a crying shame because the UK industry is crippling now at this stage. I mean, you're just watching the news and you're listening. I'm listening to colleagues of mine in, in, in the UK and, you know, they are very worried about what's going to happen. I mean, it's going to, and it's going to be worse for us then as a consequence. Um, so, you know, um, all we can do is hope and pray um, and plan. And I think that's, if I was to talk to but one thing today from the, from the wearing the, my, my chamber hat, it is that Intertrade uh, and the Louth Economic Office, Leo, um, have both put together schemes. I'm involved with both of them in terms of advising people as to what to do. Um, and there are a number of steps you can take. And I think at this stage, while people were saying it'll be all right on the night, I mm. think it's a bit too late to be think, hoping, for the, hoping for that. I think we need to start planning for a worst-case scenario, unfortunately. Right, really, uh, because I suppose uh, there was the expectation uh, that this would be suspended for some time, which is what I meant about half time. And uh, it, it appears as though you're right in that there will not be movement on the backstop because the backstop isn't the backstop if you give any of uh, the guarantees or assurances that they're looking for. Uh, but uh, that means that Mrs. May will fail the three tests that is expected of her by her own MPs, uh, but will have to put the original deal to a vote in the House of Commons. Yeah, and it got beaten by the biggest majority of all time uh, the last time out. There might be some shift and some reality check, but I, I'm worried about whether it'll be enough. And the problem is that if you kick it down the road, and we always suspected that that's what mm. would happen to it, um, yes, you can kick it as far as the end of June because... The, European, the new European uh, Parliament, which will be elected in May, doesn't come into power until the first week in July. But, you know, if, if you wanted to kick it beyond that, does that mean that Britain has to have EU elections? Uh, are you electing MPs that are going to sit there for six months, the full term? What? You know? Mm. Um, like, it's, it, it's just incredibly frustrating from an Irish business point of view, and particularly from a, from a border area mm. looking at it, just saying... Would would somebody please explain to us what the hell you want, and then we can maybe sit down and work it out. But are, 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 are they not going to stay in Europe forevermore, or indefinitely at least, because there is a deal that they won't accept, can't find acceptable, and can't find a way of uh, reaching uh, some way of feeling that it meets their needs. Uh, but on the other hand, they say that they're not going to leave without a deal. So that leaves one option, and that's stay in. Yeah, you, you're, yeah, but unfortunately, they'll have to actually vote to actually stay, not to leave, if you follow me, because mm. that's the only way that's going to happen. And what you're looking at is, if, the, if nothing gets past the Parliament at the moment as it stands then Article 50's triggering is the one that stays in place. That's the default and legal that's the position. default from their point of view, and that means they leave without a deal. Um, Even so, though they vote? Well, the only hope is that if they vote that they, that they won't leave without a deal and that the EU is flexible, then you postpone the position, but how long do you postpone it for? That's, mm. that's the problem. And that would be my hope, that that middle ground would be at least voted on and it would give maybe the British people enough chance to actually, you know, vote again. Now, I was watching a programme last week, where, where Question Time, where they were debating the thing, and what worried me was the number of people who put their hands up when the question was asked, would you change your mind 
not asking what way you voted, just would you change your mind? And the number of people who put their hands up was very few. Mm. So two years of tearing themselves apart doesn't seem to have shifted. And I've got to admit, I'm extremely surprised that the uh, Remain campaign can't get a proper message across as to you know, the stupidity of this as far as, as far as Europeans are looking at it from point. We, we obviously don't get what the Brits have got a hang-up over because it doesn't make sense to us from an economic um, and from a trading mm. point of view and from a cooperation point of view. You know, it's just not making sense. Because there may be another referendum, uh, although that in itself is not certain either. But if there is to be a a referendum uh, because of the support of uh, the Labour Party, uh, it's not clear what people would be asked. Uh, So uh, they might be asked a a different question. Would that make any difference? Yeah, I think, well, you see, that's the problem. When you are holding a referendum, um, the trick is to, and it is a trick, is to ask the question that you want in such a way that you know what the answer has to be. Mm. Um, and I can remember uh, many years ago watching Yes Minister talking somebody into a series of three questions that made the move from being uh, against nuclear weapons to be in favour of nuking Russia in the, in the space of three questions. You can manipulate questions very skillfully, and that's the problem. I mean, how a, a complicated issue brought down to a yes-no answer. I mean, it may well be that there needs to be three, you know, May's deal, no deal, or stay where we are, or stay where they are, and, and, and the three deals put, to, put and then, well, do you, do you do what the French would do, put the three deals on the offer, and then the top two go forward the following week for another run? I mean, it's, it's becoming a farce, and that's the, that's the problem with it. And Michael, if I can just mention, mm-hmm. we're holding a, a Brexit conference to brief our own members uh, on the 13th of March, uh, it's in the Carrickdale Hotel. We're doing it in conjunction with Newry. And everybody from County Louth, on the, um, we'll go back to the M1 corridor that we, we've, we, we, we uh, raised two weeks ago. Uh, everyone is invited. Uh, if you would please just let the Chamber know that you're coming. Brenda at dundalk.ie will be sufficient. Um, and the timing of that... Uh, the timing of it mm. is we, we left it as late as we possibly could. Um, and it's the day after the vote. Now, mm. that actually was a, a bit of luck. In, in one way, because we picked that about three weeks ago before the 12th was announced as the date. But it is the day after. And we would be hoping that we would have a government minister there that would make his position clear. Uh, and we would be hoping then that there would be some element of certainty that we can give. We would have people there from customs, from taxation and from other areas advising people, this is what you need to be thinking about for the next two weeks. No, you know. Maybe nobody will show up because everything's gone back to remain, but I think the odds of that are fairly slim. So therefore, it's an important conference, and I think um, I, pre- I thank you very much for giving me the chance to mention it. Oh, very welcome, uh, and uh, indeed, I'm sure we'll be hearing more about that next week. Uh, but uh, before you leave us, uh, maybe you'd tell us what you've been hearing from people uh, after the comments that were made last week uh, about uh, Navy warships uh, impounding uh, little boats uh, with 76 millimeter guns on board. Uh, there was a lot of embarrassment on the southern side of the border, I think about what happened uh, in Dundalk Bay, uh, but uh, there was uh, a very strong response from north of the border. And I don't blame them. Can you imagine if it had been the other way around and a a fishing boat from Clara had been been hauled into Kilkeel or hauled into Newcastle and asked to explain itself? 
I mean, it was a ridiculous situation. should never have arisen. The government knew that when the Supreme Court had made its decision that they had to change the law, it should have been done an awful lot quicker. And, and this is the problem with the whole Brexit issue. Governments, whether they're ours or whether they're the British or the Europeans, are not able to respond quick enough for, for trading and for industry to actually plan. And, and, and that's what we've been screaming about from the very beginning. Um, shouldn't have happened. Absolutely, definitely not. I mean, to stop an Irish boat, as far as I'm concerned, it was an Irish boat mm. uh, shipping or uh, fishing in Irish waters. Whether that boat sailed out of Kilkeel or whether Clare Head is not relevant as far as I'm concerned. But was there concern at how the mood changed, let's Absolutely. say? Absolutely. I mean... And how quickly it can change. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that that was uh, 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 an incident that sparked this response, but it's the response I'm asking you about, I Yeah, suppose. the response... I don't blame the North for the response that they did. I, I can well understand that, and that's why I'm saying if it was the other way around, we would have responded as quickly. We need to get the message across that this was a mistake in an administration level and was nothing to do with politics, and we need to get that message out loud and clear. And in, in one respect, it was good that the Taoiseach was in the north, um, you know, was through, went through the county laws on Friday and went into the north on Friday night and at least got that message across that, you know, sorry, we made a mistake and we'll get it corrected, but it wasn't meant as anything else other than that. Um, it's an awful shame, though, to see that happen. All right, Paddy, we leave there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Paddy Malone, PRO of uh, the Chamber of Commerce in Dundalk. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Tony from County Louth contacted us regarding the nurses working week and says on the matter of the nurses' dispute and the length of shifts worked, it should be said that the present 12-hour shift was not imposed on nurses but looked for by many of them to shorten the travelling working week and to gain the resulting days off. But it has to be said that such a shift length could most certainly lead to fatigue in a profession where mistakes cannot afford to be made. And although a two-hour shift would be something of a nuisance, 12 hours is definitely too long for the safe administration of medication Mm. and so on. Okay, well, I think there'll be a lot of people looking at uh, what is on offer here uh, and uh, I have a feeling we'll be hearing more about nurses' issues in time to come. On tips in restaurants, Tom says that he was listening into the interview surprised that the low pay commission is saying it's not a problem. I've heard of a well known establishment in the North East which takes the staff tips. If there is any breakages, for example, if a glass is knocked over or a plate or something like that, and that doesn't seem fair to him that the staff have to pay out of their tips. Mm. Yeah, well actually the Low Pay Commission is saying that there isn't reliable data to indicate that there's a problem so I I gather it's uh, taking a position of uh, not knowing if it is a problem or not. Sinn Féin said it did significant research and it did a lot of research uh, in Galway in the last couple of years and heard from an awful lot of people who said that they weren't able to hold on to their tips. Debbie says that like many others she worked at waitressing while she was in college and only for the tips that's what kept her going and she says why would you bother going the extra mile for customers you're serving if you know you're not going to get the tip at the end of it all. (laughs) Mm, I suppose you mightn't have a job at the end of it all. (laughs) 
That might be one reason. <laughs> um, Mairead, unfortunately, if there weren't greedy restaurant owners, you wouldn't need this legislation. But unfortunately, there are some and that's why legislation is needed. Some owners do take advantage of workers and that's not right. Uh, diners should be aware of the tipping policy in restaurants, says Sean. I think it would make an enormous difference to the amount that people would tip, knowing exactly where the tips were going. All right, interesting stuff. Uh, we'll go uh, to the phones now uh, and hear uh, about a working group which has been established under the Department of Health by the Minister for Health, Simon Harris. It follows recommendations uh, from uh, the Oireachtas Committee on repealing the Eighth Amendment and when it made its recommendations on abortion. It also made recommendations about crisis pregnancies and trying to prevent them. And one of the recommendations is to make contraception more widely available and access to be improved. The working group is to determine if cost is a barrier to accessing contraception and it may lead to condoms being available to people free of charge in colleges and pubs. Let's talk to Barry Clohesy, who is the Vice President President of USI for the Border, Midlands and West and represents uh, the students at DKIT. Good morning to you, Barry, and thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, what would you be saying to this working group? Uh, is cost a, a barrier? Um, it's an extremely welcome idea that, that uh, contraception will be free of charge. And cost is most definitely a barrier. Um, I, I've been in the student movement for quite some time myself, and I suppose that the student movement and students' unions around the country are kind of leading the way forward in providing uh, free contraception because we give out many hundreds of thousand condoms every year and I suppose recently enough we're, we're a shy campaign which was run on four different campuses around the country we give out 30,000 condoms in four days on top of what every other student's union will give out um, so it is extremely welcome that there, there, there is a, a committee set up to, to look at the possibility of, of free contraception we really do welcome that um, because we have been doing it for many, many, many years um, so we need to look at it outside of the, the student sphere now also as well. And is it a barrier in that students can't afford contraceptives or is it a, a barrier in that they don't want to spend the money on them? Uh, because uh, some people might wonder how you can go down to the pub and spend a small fortune uh, but not buy a condom from the vending machine or why you might use one if it was free. Like I, I suppose we have to look in a sense that... Um, the government has failed our students in in the, the basic education around sex, um, and it is, this is a conversation that we've started to have quite actively. And I, I suppose there is a lack of education around using contraception because it it just wasn't there in schools. Um, so I think we really need to start promoting that. You know, like sex isn't just about. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, having babies, it's, it's about having pleasurable sex um, as well. And, and, and accessing contraception should be completely free of charge. It, it, it's a basic thing that you need to do. It, it's no more like uh, females accessing sanitary products um, because... But they it, pay for them. It, 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 it's a basic human right. But they pay know, for like, them. And that's the thing, that they shouldn't be paying for them um, because they are... I, I understand there there is different types of contraception that you get and, and I, I, I'm i completely 100% for free contraception. Um, and particularly around females who have to pay mm. every, every six months for a, a kind of doctor's fee plus every month for their for their pill. Um, I, I don't think that's that's acceptable, and, and I don't think that anyone should be profiting off something like that. So, it's a valid argument to say that you can go to the pub for the night and spend whatever you spend, uh, but that it's unreasonable to ask you to go into the toilet and uh, spend a couple of euro in the vending machine to bring a condom home with you? I, I suppose w- with with that argument, you have to question whether or not you spend your couple of euro and that action machine gives you, um, first of all, condoms that are in date, and second of all, actual condoms. Because I know a number of people who have gone to a pub and who have attempted to spend that couple of euro uh, and they've literally just been shown up trumps with no condoms appearing out of the machine or condoms appearing out of date. Whereas if you had a much more regulated system that would give you free contraception, you would actually be preventing STIs, um, number one, and you'd be, um, event- uh, you'd be preventing crisis pregnancy. Mm, well, they'd be the same vending machines, wouldn't they? But but it's but that's, that's the thing. Like I I really don't think we need to be paying for this. It's it's a mm. very small commodity that that is, is essential. Oh well, somebody will pay for it though, Barry. You see, and 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 I suppose that's true. But if this is a recommendation that came out um, in regards to the mm. amendment, it is obviously something that's very prevalent. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Barry Clausey is uh, the Vice President of uh, the Union of Students in Ireland for the Border, Midlands and West. Now, Marie, you have more comments for us there. I have indeed. Noel from Omid was listening to your interview with Paddy Malone of Dundalk Chamber of Commerce. Says it's worrying that he seems so pessimistic at this stage regarding the Brexit outcome. I thought there was a reason for hope in recent weeks that it might be deferred, says Noel. Yeah, well, the thing is, as Paddy said, if uh, they don't vote for any of the options, then it's the legal default position, and that is exit without a deal. Seamus from Dundalk cannot believe, Michael, now that Brexit is less than four weeks away Mm. and still we don't know exactly what is going to happen. Who'd have thought we'd still be here at this stage? Um, (laughs) You didn't have the crystal ball, uh, Michael, that you always wanted. (laughs) uh, No, no, no. I I, I mean, I don't believe... 
from the word go, I said, the sky is not going to fall in. There won't be a Brexit. I can't uh, imagine that it'll be on that uh, no deal scenario uh, that we're also fearful of. Uh, but, uh, I mean, it really is a, a game of chicken. And despite everybody's wishes, it could end up being the default position that takes over and that uh, they're forced to leave without a deal. Michael, we had such a response to a topic we covered on Friday in relation to the uh, suggestion that religious symbols could be removed from oh, hospitals. Really? Okay, yeah. mm-hmm. Fanula was in touch and says, I'm sick of the church bashing. Yes, some people did wrong, but the whole church is imploding. Where would we be without the religious? The state couldn't afford or hadn't the will to provide schools or hospitals until recently. And now they are coveting everything that is throwing the baby out with the bath water, including the name and any reminders of Catholicism. There are still some practising Catholics around and I find it offensive. Mm, okay. Mary says, for some reason, Michael, she gets the feeling that uh, you would approve of religious icons, as she puts it, being removed mm. from hospitals. But you yourself, Michael, mention God quite a lot. How would you like it if not believing listeners objected to you saying, see you tomorrow morning, God willing, which okay. you always sign mm-hmm. off on. Mm. You might say to them, switch stations. If people object to cribs, etc. in our hospitals, let them go elsewhere for treatment, okay. says Mary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Interesting. Birdie says, no way should we do this. I don't care what anyone says. We may, we may not all be running to church as much as we used to. But when you find yourself, Michael, in a bit of bother, I personally will say a few prayers for someone who is sick. So having the church in the hospital or symbols around the hospital is comforting to both the person who is sick and the family. Stephen says, though, that everyone has their own beliefs. Give them the choice if they want the symbols or not. But personally, I'd appreciate if they took them down for me. Okay. So that's a Mm. flavour. We Mm. had lots. (laughs) Right, okay. But I I take it the vast majority of people represented in uh, the comments there, which say that the symbol should stay and uh, that uh, it shouldn't be changed. You're absolutely right right there. All right. Thanks for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about institutional child abuse or more importantly uh, the people who were abused uh, the thousands of survivors that uh, gave evidence uh, to state inquiries over a number of years. Uh, That testimony that they gave was given on the understanding uh, that uh, the documentation resulting from what they said would be destroyed. Now, that's not to be the case and legislation is uh, to be introduced which would hold these documents in the National Archives for 75 years. John Kelly, coordinator with SOCA, Survivors of Child Abuse in Ireland group, is on the line. Good morning to you, John, and thanks for joining us. Is this a betrayal of trust? Well, it is in many, many ways. We remember when this came out, Mike. Oh, this was proposed years ago. Now, I don't really think that this is really all about the victims at all. This is about scrutiny. National scrutiny, public scrutiny into what these files contain. You must remember, at the time, all of these things were held in secret. Now, it's not the only look at Australia. That was held in public, in fact, on television. Mm. But here, what it is, is what it would show. And we objected to it. We said, 
We said at the time, and one other important point, this was only designed for the commission. It was never designed for the redress uh, board or anything else. It was only proposed for the commission because that was the most controversial. Right, and this legislation will apply to the Commission to Inquire into Child Abuse, the Residential Institutions Redress Board, as well as the Residential Institutions Redress Review Committee. Yes, and you see, where, where all this gets really controversial, and it's, as we, we, we objected all of this way back along, we wanted, to be quite honest, some public forum for those who wanted it. But what you see this does here, and it's very clever, you see, all these pieces of legislation that you just mentioned, when they were brought through, they weren't brought in necessarily just for the victim. You see, there was clauses put in to protect the state and the deal that the state did with the religious orders. That's what it was all about. And what it would show, let's give you an example. When it was, as I said about the commission, we objected to that. It would show that the evidence of certain people who went in before the commission, it would also show that the state was culpable in so much and how it was culpable. They don't want that to come out. There's nothing got to do with the victim. Mm. But you see, here's another thing. If you look at the Residential Redress Act, where people have for compensation, you look the way this was designed. Now, this was all done in secret, but because it was done in secret, nobody knows what went on inside these institutions. Just, uh, sorry, the Redress Board, just like the institution, nobody knew. Mm. But what happened, we know victims where they were asked, uh, what was the length of the abuser's uh, penis and stuff like that? Mm. Now, these horrific things, questions that, they don't want all that to be revealed. Yeah, many people feel that they were traumatised by the commission that was looking into their complaints. Well, not only the, re- not only the commission, the readers brought over the conversation, you see, and also mm. to tie into it. What they, under the readers' legislation said is that, un- un- unlike the perpetrator, says, if you reveal anything, that went on in here, even about how you were questioned, how you were destroyed yep. at this thing. You could be sent to prison for six to 18 months, but no such conditions were laid on the perpetrators or those given who covered them up. Mm. You see, that would show, if these were to be revealed, it would show how the interrogations went on, where people were getting compensation. That's a strong word, John, interrogations. Is that the way people felt? Because people did feel that when they went... Uh, in front of these boards uh, that they were being asked questions on the basis that their story wasn't fully believed or needed to be tested in case they were just chancers looking for money. Well, you see, that's what we thought originally. We said, well, yeah, because we thought that. We said, we didn't need to be putting through all this, but see, see how it goes. But what basically happened is, mm. is I know, because the people who contacted us said, it's the worst thing they ever went through. In their life. And some of them, for a measly five grand or something like that. They will put you horrible things. Now, for instance, sake, take mine. I can only speak really in that sense, categorically about my own. The thing, they challenged me on every single thing. Mm. And they said, they called me, virtually called me. Like, now, I'm talking about, it's not just the board. Here's the strange one which people didn't realise. The other side could challenge you and everything. Everything that you say is sent to them. Mm. So they can send back a reply through their solicitors asking all these type of questions. Whatever like with no hindrance and, and, and no, um, if I say, no penalties to them. And that was said to me, the, the things that were said to me was unbelievable. Well, can Mr. Kelly please explain when his mother visited him? When he, all of this. Now, this was all traumatising. Now, I refused to go. 
But I'm just talking about this was the build-up to it. Mm. I refused to go. I wouldn't go to the thing. I, would, I wasn't willing to go in there and be subjected to that interrogation. But, if it, but you see, that's the way the legislation worked. Now, what, imagine, I'll just give you one example, and that's before I went in. Now, I can tell you stories where some of the, some of the people put through the horrific things. They really were about race. Oh, it's unbelievable. Did your mother go with many black people? Oh, it's unbelievable. And I, and, and I know this, and this is what people told me. So what I'm saying is, that would be revealed. It's not in the public interest. It's not in the victim's interest to bury these away for 75 years. What is basically, is it's burying the secrets. Now, as I told you... So would you, you rather the documents be published now? Well, the way I would look at it is, uh, well, for those who wish it, because some people would find they're re-traumatising all over again, mm. obviously, and the way that they were treated and everything else. But I think certain aspects of it could be, uh, let's say, for, for example, the evidence that the perpetrators gave, I think that could be re- uh, released. I think the views and how people were interrogated could be released now. The certain aspects, well, I certainly believe that, uh, why break a 30-year rule? I mean, we've seen things that happen that... And so embarrassment from the government with a cover of more everything, but it's still revealed after thirty years. But the original agreement was that the files would be destroyed, and uh, I think probably some people gave evidence on that basis, and that they wouldn't have testified had they thought that these records would have been made public yes, at some I time. Think, and I can understand that that's one point, and that's one aspect of it. But what I'm saying to you is this, and this is where we say, is that. For instance, say, those people who may have done that in, in, in hindsight might say, well, hold on, mm. my evidence, but what about, say, the Department of Education? Just for example, they mm. were interrogated where you could see that they gave a clean bill of health to all these institutions every year. And we don't know what else they did, but it would have been discussed at the commission. All that would have come out. So it wasn't just the victim's perspective, all of that. So what I'm saying to you is, at least under a 30-year rule, it, it, it would come out what the state was doing. It, it seems as though it may come out after 30 years, whether people wanted to or not, despite the assurance that they were given when they did testify that the documents would be destroyed, because this legislation will lock these files away for 75 years. Uh, they'll be sealed in the National Archives for that length of time. But the legislation itself is to be reviewed in 25 years, when you can take it that uh, uh, some of the people that we're talking about yeah, will be really. dead or uh, too old to notice type of thing. Uh, and uh, undoubtedly in 25 years from now, uh, the rawness of it will be gone and uh, this will be seen as important information and in the public interest to publish uh, in five years from then. Yeah, but this is the point where I'm saying is people when they they were also promised lots of things to victims. Mm. They were promised yeah that they'd be protected and all the rest of it. And there were a lot of victims like myself. And I'm I'm fully uh, minded that not everybody wanted to. I would have preferred public. I because I really it was the only way of getting justice. Bearing in mind, Michael, mm. not one of these people were brought to court. That was the condition: is that they were given a privilege, an immunity. Mm. They were effectively given immunity. If they gave evidence there, I'm talking about the perpetrators. Mm. They were given that. So but what I'm saying to you is, had they known that th- what they would have went through, forget about it, because of, they were hiding behind the anonymity and it wouldn't be published, they got a terrible time. Now, victims didn't expect that either. 
So at least they might say, well, hold on, this crime was as bad as your original crime. Maybe we should uh, release it. I was always held to the view that for those who wanted it, it should be revealed because basically it was a method to cover up crimes. That's all this whole thing. It was never designed in any way, shape or form for the victims. It really wasn't. But, and you have to remember, a lot of people, in my case, I'm 68 uh, in, a week, in a week's time. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is this. There's many, many people, much older than me, and I was one of the youngest. Mm. So in 20 years' time, 10 years' time, I'm probably likely to be around here. So how would it affect me? So what I'm saying in 20 years, why not? Just release, and that's why I said at the time, 30 years, fine. But I wanted to show, and I'm, I'm damn sure myself, it would show the, the, the horrible way they treated people, the way that they covered crimes up. And they always remember, they covered the... the people's names up who were who, in the Department of Education, who were Secretary Generals and over the years, you know, who were complicit in all of these things. And that's what they don't want revealed. It's people, because it's their families. They, they, they use the victims say, well, the victims and their families, people would know all about them. And equally, so would people know about people who worked in the Department of Education and their families, and their families who were still working, I'm not saying they did anything mm. wrong, their families, but it would be just as embarrassing for them. So no government wants that. Any government that wants to do anything like that, why 75 years? That is extraordinary, isn't it? Well, I think there is a, a question of defamation, isn't there, in uh, that uh, somebody may have been accused by somebody else of doing something, uh, but the threshold of proof is not what it would be in a, a court of law. Uh, but there is also this other issue uh, that uh, people did give testimony uh, on the basis that it would never be made public. Uh, and they may say, look, I'll be dead in 30 years or 50 years, but I don't want that to be my legacy. And uh, when in 100 years from now, somebody uh, looks up their ancestry and uh, finds out uh, that I gave evidence to this, uh, that's something that I just want to be forgotten about, not to be in my family. Well, this can be used in any legislation. I think like Katrina uh, Crow was saying from National Archives, it can be used for anything. I mean... You take the Ch- National Children's Hospital. We, we've been told time and time again, rather than have accountability, because this was all about it's accountability. There was no accountability, and that would show mm. all of that. And there was nobody brought to court. And again, like the Children's Hospital, what they would say is, well, so what do you all tend to do? Let's focus on lessons to be learned. How can we learn any lessons from this sort of thing if mm. we're going to let it go for 75 years? Because by then, that's exactly why you hold all these inquiries is because by the time mm. they get published, people are just bored with them. Ah, oh, sure, but in 75 years from now, it'll mean nothing. Uh, so it, it, it won't even be fish and chip paper. It, 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 and that's, and that's, what, that's why I should get, mm. is the real reason behind all of this, it wasn't to protect the victims. Now, I know they said, we promised the victims, uh, but you was because of the, the way these processes worked, the vast majority of the victims didn't even excuse me, didn't even go to them. So what about their stories? Well, you see, I, I, I think victims really need to be able to say what they wanted to say without, obviously, I mean, you can't defame somebody, I accept that. But, uh, but even when the case with somebody was, say, 75 years mm-hmm. old, we, we don't have a tendency here to prosecute them. Why? It just, when it comes to religious, it's just like recently, we have to... It's repeated what the Pope is doing at the moment, going through all of this and leave it in the long 
put it out into the long grass mm -hmm. and hold inquiries and look into it. But nobody's ever really convicted. I mean, the only reason the uh, the guy in Australia is because, uh, and you bear in mind that guy in Australia, I know mm -hmm. it's going off tr uh, track yeah, here, but yeah. uh, it's the exact same sort of thing. Uh, he peeled everything out and they were sort of, not done, one of the victims died, committed, well, died mm -hmm. of an overdose. I mean, it took all of that before this guy was convicted. So what I'm saying to you, to horrific crimes, let's look at the main thing here, is the commission said it was atrocious crimes. Atrocious crimes, it says, mm. done sexually, physically to children. That's what the Ryan report said. Tens of thousands of children were physically, sexually, emotionally abused. Now, what were the thoughts from that? There'd be prosecutions. There wasn't. So... There has to be something really oh, poisonous and toxic in that for the commission, uh, Chavez, to say that. Mm -hmm. We'll never know that. Okay. All right, John, we have to leave it there. Unfortunately, uh, we've uh, run over time. I know Thank you, you wanted to try and touch on the scouts, but maybe we can another time. Absolutely. That's yeah. also very important. As I said, paedophiles will find their way of getting in anywhere where children are. Okay. Maybe another time, Mike. Indeed. John, uh, apologies for running over time uh, on that other issue, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us today. John Kelly, coordinator of SOCA, the Survivors of Child Abuse Group in Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Climate change, water quality and pollution and waste are the biggest environmental challenges facing this country according to 61% of people surveyed by Red Sea for the Environmental Protection Agency. 37% of those people surveyed say that climate change is the most pressing of all challenges. Let's talk about this with Green Party Councillor Mark Deary. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. I think there's been some surprise at how few people see uh, climate change to be such an important issue. Hello, Michael. Um, yes, there were a few surprises in the, in the survey to me. Um, and one was that we are still not fully alert to the um, cliff edge that we're on when it comes to uh, the, the, the very severe impacts that climate change will have uh, unless we achieve rapid decarbonisation of our economy and of all economies around the world by 2050, thereby limiting um, the temperature rise to under 1.5 degrees. Is the second part of that view the view that most people hold, that this is somebody else's problem, in other words? Um, I'm not sure if that's what the survey reveals or whether people have more, pre more uh, pressing on a daily basis things in their minds. I don't know. Uh, but 37%, I don't think, is, is going to necessarily be the motivator for a very, very um, laggardly government to change its its current casual approach to the climate change issue. And the European Commission appears to uh, agree with you. Uh, last week it said Ireland is falling further behind other EU countries in decarbonising the economy and raising health, climate and environmental concerns. That's the country by country report, is it? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, yes, the European Commission last week... Um, published its assessment of each of, of the member states across a range of metrics and uh, in Ireland's case our, our, our complete failure to come even close to our 2030 target, which we committed to um, um, is, is highlighted, not just for the sake of hitting a target, but for the sake of all of us, and the Commission point out to all of the downstream impacts that this is going to have on us, 
not just the fines that we're going to face, but the potential threat to inward investment. Um, they highlight three or four of the big digital companies that are here in Ireland who want 100% renewable energy and who may look elsewhere for us in future. Mm. It points to the whole issue of stranded assets, where our pensions are, are invested. Uh, what if suddenly there is a proper global response to the fact that we need to leave about 65% of all known reserves of oil in the ground? What will happen to, to people's pensions who are invested in those companies? These are assets that will rapidly become stranded unless we have a far, far more realistic approach to the kind of changes that um, are, are about to happen. I, I firmly believe they must happen or we are all um, pr- pretty well consigned to, to, to an unimaginably difficult future uh, characterised by massive climate migration, uh, changes in weather patterns that will make, lead to food scarcity, water scarcity uh, and, and um, a collapse of the, of the Gulf Stream which gives us our temperate climate. And if, that's fairly. I know that's fairly shocking um, assessment of the future. Mm. But we can't. We can't count. But means out me, 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 means little to a lot of people, though. You know, shocking as it might seem to your mind, it means little to a lot of people. And I say that because there was a near revolution at the idea of increasing taxes on diesel. Yeah, uh, yeah and, we spoke about that some time ago, Michael. Mm-hmm. The, the yellow vest protests in France. Um, and, and I mean, the key lesson for any government, and I, I referred back to our own efforts in government to bring in uh, a carbon levy at the time, which which we did, uh, the Greens, when they were in government that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, I suppose one of the huge lessons we've learned since is that unless it's, it's completely fair in how it's administered, and there was an attempt at fairness in that, in that the, 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 the carbon levy was accompanied by an increase in fuel allowances, um, but that wasn't seen to be nearly transparent enough at the time, I recall. Mm-hmm. So now we've got to go for a system that actually changes behaviour through, through taxation, but also um, uh, ensures fairness through it. But will it wash with people? I, I know, I mean, there's all sorts of uh, suggestions like giving the money back to you and sending you a cheque in the post and whatever, but will people be willing to pay uh, a couple of cent extra per, di- per litre of diesel if uh, Donald Trump is promoting coal? Yeah, I think that sense of global solidarity is important, but I also think we all recognise Donald Trump as a total outlier in all of this. Um, and uh, in, in that sense, he, his moral authority on this issue is so weak that I think most people would not pay much heed to his position. I, I, I continue to argue and urge people to consider the future scenario. And that we do have a responsibility and a role in addressing it. And that while that 37% figure is probably up on, say, two or three years ago, it needs to at least double before it becomes the political imperative, which seems to me to be the only uh, motivator for a government at the moment. Um, I, I, I'm sorry to say that because I, I know many of them and there's many decent people in there. But the business as usual model that continues to be argued for, even at the Climate uh, Change Committee, where even key senior public servants are coming in and arguing that a modicum of change EU demands and not change at an existential crisis. And no. uh, that, that's the reality hasn't happened. The, 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 if, if I might quote President Higgins um, recently, yeah. he, so, he so often uh, manages to say things in, in, in a way that I think cuts through to the truth in, in a poetic way. He said, um, uh, our economy, I'll just put on my glasses here, excuse me. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, he, 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 he said, um, he warns that, that our current economic model, based on the illusion of infinite growth and rampant consumerism, is chronically flawed. We need, he said, quote, to change our mindsets to achieve a symmetry between ecology, economics and ethics. 
And um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a high-flung statement, but I think it creates a, t- a target for us all. And, and if we could just crystallise policy around those ideas, I think we'd go a long way towards reversing the kind of situation we have now, like in County Louth, where we haven't got a single pristine, clean waterway, mm-hmm. where 90% of all the protected sites in Ireland, biodiversity sites in Ireland, are in poor condition, where, where, uh, where all of our, uh, our biodiversity services are chronically underfunded, where local government routinely doesn't have a biodiversity officer. We don't in Louth, for instance. Um, there are so many areas where... where, where poly- Pla- plastic is another area, and it's one that I wanted to talk to you about as well, because uh, there's been a lot of time dedicated uh, to talking uh, about single-use plastic and uh, to regulate them out of use. Uh, the Waste Reduction Bill, which was introduced by the Green Party, uh, mm-hmm. is, is now being rejected. Uh, the government uh, says uh, that it's illegal under EU law and will not put it in place the necessary legislation to make it happen because uh, it's a money message, as they call it. Mm, yeah, it requires financial measures or whatever. Yeah, the Waste Reduction Bill 2017... Um, was meant to do two things, introduce a return, a deposit and return scheme for beverage containers and a ban on single-use non-compostable cups and tableware. So the latter is not a money issue, but the the former is, indeed it is. Um, Well, look, um, you know, Richard Bruton, when he he took over from Dennis Nocton, who really was managing to soft-pedal on this, initiated some sort of a national review, which uh, I'm not sure is required, but certainly it, it, it sent Catherine Martin into a complete tailspin on television. I remember her interview uh, at the time. Um, the frustration was, was, was completely apparent in her, in her words at that stage. And when you look at what can be achieved through um, those sort of um, deposit schemes where in, in the Netherlands a 25 cent uh, deposit on all pet bottles resulted in a 95% return of flame. In Sweden the figure is 84%. In Finland it's 92%. We, we often look at these countries mm. as models um, of, of, of you know of, of best practice and we've areas talked about them before a lot of these schemes have been in place for years so what is well, uh, the government breach- argument that it breaches European law I, I don't get it I have to say I don't get that and um, you know we, we, we do have um, uh, the charge in plastic bags which, which is paid you know at source um, I, I don't know if, 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 this, if this exact model isn't achievable well look come up with something else government you know just just give us give us an option don't just reject here we all have to recognize that we are um we are that as brian stanley actually thought he put it very well he said the miracle substance of the 20th of the 20th century is now the plague substance of the 21st century we often introduce things without proper end of life um consideration Mm. and uh, this is one example and i think just we need to address it and 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 there's no question that a money bill will do it will do it most effectively and it's up to government to, to devise a scheme if they reject our scheme. Let's okay. hear Let's hear from them on it All right. urgently. Brian Stanley, uh, Sinn Féin's Environment Spokesperson. We have to leave it there for the moment, though, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Green Party Councillor Mark Deary. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, on Friday, Gardaí uncovered more guns and ammunition in County Loud. Let's uh, hear what's been going on. Stephen Breen is the crime editor with uh, the Irish Sun and this follows similar searches in Omeath uh, at the beginning of last month uh, and uh, more gruesome finds it would seem. Yeah Michael it shows that the dissident Republicans are still very much active but it also shows that the Gardaí and the Special Detective Unit and local officers there in County Louth are also aware 
of the threat posed by these uh, dissident Republican groupings. It shows that they do have access to weapons, they have access to explosives, and because they are closely uh, located uh, to the border, I mean, the, the theory is that these weapons are going to be used for attacks on security sources, on security forces uh, in the north. Now, you know, you have various dissident groupings that are still active. Mm. Um, you, you have this so-called new IRA, which was responsible for the bomb attack in, in Derry, which which could have claimed innocent lives. I mean, there was a, a, a chilling image of young people walking past a car bomb before it exploded. But, you know, the, the security forces are making good headway, you know, in relation to these groupings. And uh, clearly they've prevented further attacks by uncovering these weapons dumps. And Semtex exploded, explosives uh, discovered in this particular search. Yeah, I mean, Semtex was a, a choice used by the Provisional IRA during their conflict, and it, it's worrying that maybe some of the, the Semtex that was used in the past uh, has been kept uh, by, you know, former members of the Provisional IRA who were opposed to the peace process and then decided to, to jump ship to the dissident groups. But, you know, you, you do have, like, you have this so-called new IRA, which yeah. are active in, in Derry, which have um, supporters in, in Armagh, North Armagh, South Armagh, uh, and also in Belfast. But the good thing is here that, they, they, that there are successes for the security services on both sides of the border, and it is going to you know, continue. And I think you know, Brexit is also coming into play here, mm-hmm. where that there are concerns. What's it going to be like in the event of a hard border? Will there be an, an increase in violence? You know, will the cooperation between you know, the PSNI and, and Garda Siakana continue? And that's what, what the hope is. But the, the concern is that you know, these uh, these dissident grippings may try and exploit the situation of Brexit. You know, we see in Derry where there's been a, a lack of uh, infrastructure there, a lack of investment over years, and dissident grippings are trying to exploit young men. And they're also involved in criminality. I think that's important to, to point out many of these these, these dissident groupings have links to organised crime, they're involved in cigarette smuggling, they're involved in mm-hmm. fuel laundering, and they're just trying to exploit uh, the vacuum there, but also there some criminals who may join these groups are just using their name as a flag of convenience to you know, cover their own um, tracks in terms of criminality. Okay, and these weapons tools of uh, the type of businesses you're talking about, but also in terms of uh, dissident Republican activity, and uh, that is what the Gardaí are investigating. These weapons are, are, are buried, are they buried in the woods? Buried in the woods, you know, they could have been there for some time, but it, it shows that, I mean, it's you know, the Gardaí has spent a number of days, you know, searching the, the various sites recently and didn't cover these weapons, but it shows you as well that in these groupings there, there must be an informer there that there is supplying information, mm. you know, to the security forces, and you see as well, even in the north, I mean, the, the MI, MI5 have a real handle on these groupings. You have a lot of senior players uh, behind bars, you have a lot of senior members of these groupings who are on stringent uh, bail conditions, so you know, the security services, despite sure. the, the bombing in Derry, are, are doing their best to, to uncover these weapons and, and to, to continue to thwart their activities. Do you expect more weapons to be discovered, Stephen, or has this search concluded now? Yeah, these, these, these um, groups ha- haven't gone away and they still have access to weapons. So, you know, if the Guardi do receive information or intelligence that other weapons are out there, then they will try and locate them. But there's no question that there will be other weapons out there and a small minority of people who will try and use them, you know, over the course of the, the, the coming months. I mean, their, their actions are quite sporadic. You know, it's not as, you know, sustained as other previous, you know, violent campaigns. For example, in the professional IRA, mm-hmm. there's no support in, in the community. And that they really are a group just to help end on bringing us back to, to the bad old days. But, you know, the, the security services here and in the north are, are doing everything to try and uh, disrupt their activities. 
All right, we'll leave it there, Stephen. Thanks uh, for joining us, Stephen Breen, Crime Editor with the Irish Sun. Now let's go uh, to the introduction of an Online Safety Act, a piece of legislation which will be brought forward by the Minister for Communications, Richard Bruton, today and will aim to protect all of us, young and old, when we're on the internet. He says that this brings about the end of self-regulation and uh, that new legal requirements will be placed on operators to ensure that we're all safe. It'll be uh, overseen by a regulator, an online safety commissioner, uh, who will be given a number of powers, such as certifying that the online safety codes that are and place through this legislation are uh, fit for purpose and uh, the Commissioner will also have powers to administer fines and uh, will also uh, be given other significant new powers according to the Minister. Fiona Jennings is Policy Coordinator with uh, the ISPCC. Good morning to you Fiona and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. I suppose it's legislation that has been a long time coming. Yes Michael and I think I've been on with you a couple of times discussing it as well. Um, yeah, I mean, we really welcome the proposals coming from Minister Bruton this morning. Uh, as you know, it's something that we've talked about for quite some time now, the whole area of, you know, trying to protect children online and I suppose trying to get policymakers, legislators, industry to see that children are key stakeholders um, in online safety and delighted with the proposals that have been announced this morning. And the Minister uh, says uh, that they'll be similar to uh, measures uh, that are in place in uh, Australia, where this has been somewhat successful, uh, very successful, according to the Minister. Yes. So last November, um, we were before the Joint Oireachtas Committee um, on Communications, where they were looking at a detailed scrutiny of the, the current bill, I suppose, that's, that's there, is the Digital Safety Commissioner Bill. And um, we spoke about Australia then, and indeed even New Zealand, but I suppose with the Australia... The model is that you have a digital safety commissioner, um, an e-safety commissioner referred to in Australia, and their sole responsibility then is to ensure that, um, I suppose, that industries adhere to the legislation that's in place, first of all, which is really important, that it's actually in statute, their roles and their responsibilities. Mm. And should, you know, they create awareness around it, they're responsible for the education of online safety, but most importantly, if something goes wrong, that, you know, children and young people have somebody else to go to if the procedures that some um, platforms have mm-hmm. in place, if they don't work or they don't meet their needs, then they can appeal to a digital safety committee. And this is the internet police, effectively, isn't it? In that if there's something on the internet uh, that you're unhappy with or uncomfortable about, you can go to the commissioner and make a complaint. Yeah, and I suppose with the Australian model in particular, it very much fo- it very much focuses on cyberbullying, and I suppose how they have become very successful is that, you know, children sometimes you know cyberbullying it's not just one-off statements. Mm. Sometimes it can be numerous um, posts or pictures um, that are part of they build a bigger picture of what's going on for the child or young per- person. So in isolation, while you know platforms may not view them as being, I suppose, outside of their community guidelines. Mm. The Digital Safety Commissioner is able to, I suppose, piece those pieces together and show the case and make the case for the young person to show that, well, they are being cyberbullied and this is content that, 
is reinforcing what's happening to them and they, they are forced to take it down then. Okay, and uh, the Minister has been talking about the Momo Challenge, uh, which had everybody up in arms and frightened uh, at what might be happening on the internet. That turned out to be uh, a hoax, uh, but he is right in saying uh, that it, it made us uh, step back a, a little bit and think about what's going on. Yes, and I mean, look, it was the Momo Challenge last week. I'm sure, no doubt, we'll have something else next week or, or, you know. But I suppose for us, you know, we saw that, you know, it brought online safety to the fore again. You know, what was very encouraging is that parents were talking to their children about online safety. Um, And it is something, it's, it's, you know, the Minister mentioned it in his his piece as well, that, you know, parents are finding it difficult to, to understand what's going on and, I suppose, to keep abreast and to keep a pace with the, the changes in technology and how technology evolves. Mm. And while, you know, we've always been supportive of education measures and welcomed education me- measures, one thing we've been firm on is that industry has a key role to play here too. That while the education does have a, a, an important part to play, mm. that, you know, industry, they, it's time now, they have to step up. And the minister has said that, you know, the time for mm. self-regulation is over and it's no longer sustainable. Yeah, but, I mean, collectively, uh, between uh, the industry, parents, the children and themselves and the education they might receive and uh, the new legislation, it is possible to keep people safe, I gather. That's certainly something that we believe, but we definitely do believe that, it's, you know, there's, there's many, many stakeholders in it. And like as I said at the top, you know, children mm-hmm. are a key stakeholder as well. Yeah. But it's about... Everybody, I suppose, pooling resources, working together, pulling their own individual weight and putting it behind this, that that's what's really going to affect the change that we need. Okay, thanks, Fiona. I have to leave it there. Uh, But thank you, as I say, for your time. Fiona Jennings, Policy Coordinator with the ISPCC, brings our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.